All right, guys, uh, lots of fun stuff getting into the next exciting thing, the Word of God. Uh, if you have a Bible, open it up to James chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can lift up your hand and we'll get one to you. Keep it up there, easy, we'll get it to you. It's always helpful to follow along having the text in front of you. And James chapter 1, looking at verse 26 and 27. Uh, is kind of our main text today. While you're flipping there, let's go ahead and read. Or let's go ahead and pray. Don't read while you're flipping there. That doesn't work. Lord, as we come to such an incredibly powerful scripture today, especially as we send out uh, 20 people, 16 from our church and four from the state in Colorado, Lord, um, Lord, you've got a message for us in this scripture, Lord, that I know will pierce hearts, God. And Lord, we just pray that you would show us, Lord, where we have taken up our own righteousness and our own forms of religion, and we've forsaken what you've called us to do in following hard after you and obeying you and loving you, Lord. So we pray that you would change us to be different men and different women than we were when we came in this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, James 1, 26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Growing up, you've probably realized there's a couple of taboo conversations when you're at a dinner party. uh, Conversations dealing with politics. What's the other one? Religion. Religion. James busts out a taboo in his letter. He talks about what real religion and what worthless religion looks like. Now, religion is essentially our worshiping of the Lord. It's the outward expression of a person's faith. It's the external workings of what's going on by the grace of God internally in our hearts. There are those who listen to God but don't obey God. And their religion is worthless. They may be into performances and rituals and routines, have a polished outward appearance. But despite a regular commitment, James says it's absolutely futile. In fact, it's harmful. It's not uncommon to run across somebody in your work or in your school who says that, you know what, religion is useless to me. I'm not interested in religion. Wars have been fought over religion. Genocides have been done because of religion. Religious people are hypocritical and self-righteous. And often we would reply, I couldn't agree with you more. Except that there's a scripture that tells us what a good and pure and undefiled religion looks like looks like. The harmful types of religion have an external display, but they're no resemblance to a reality that's going on in their heart. There's a type of religion that God finds acceptable. 
Now, I've often said, if I've been witnessing to someone who says, I don't like religion, I would say, I don't like religion either. I like a relationship with Jesus. Has anyone ever said that when you've been sharing with someone? I'm not into religion. I'm into a relationship with Jesus. And that's wonderful, and we know the heart behind that. But James might tell us today that probably isn't the best answer. Because essentially what you're saying is, I'm in a religious relationship anyways. We could say, I agree. I agree that there's external religion without an internal motivation. And that that is useless. What James is not saying in verses 26 and 27 is that we could reduce religion to simply be charitable deeds or morality. And there's many people, maybe even here today, who would read verse 26 and 27 as we just did and say, man, I am a pretty religious cat. I mean, I am, you know, one of the most benevolent people. I'm a total philanthropist. I love helping people. I own an orphanage and this and that and the other. And so I'm set. I'm set in my religion. But that's not what James is saying. He's not saying that you can just reduce religion down to being charitable or moral. He doesn't have an intention in that. And we can see that in the rest of the book. James is not saying that acceptance with God is found to those who are honest and kind. James has already pointed out from verses 18 through 25 that there's got to be something more. And we're going to look at that today. Many people have no interest in what we're doing here on a Sunday, but they're benevolent people, they're kind people, and if they could just reduce Christianity to fit down into their rationalistic perspective, maybe just doing the golden rule or doing it unto others as you would have them do unto you, then I'm good with God, right? Doesn't it just boil down to that? Well, we need to stand back from verses 26 and 27 And look at the context of what James is telling us. We always want to look at the context because context is king. Always remember that in your Bible study. Context is king. You want to look for the high spots, the pivotal pieces. Where does a chapter turn or where does it hinge from? We see that our hinge spot in this chapter and perhaps for the whole book is found in verse 18. In verse 18. 18. 18 may not only be to the whole key to the whole chapter, but perhaps it's the key to the whole book. Because it's in verse 18 that we see that there must be a birth. There must be a bringing forth from God. Someone must be born again. Verse 18 tells us, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. That we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now notice, it's of his own will. He has chosen to give us birth. That means that he has shown the initiative. Now I'm not a hyper-Calvinist. But when I come to scriptures that deal with the sovereignty of God, I rejoice in the sovereignty of God. And I I come to scriptures that deal with the man's responsibility. I say, hey, man's got a responsibility. But here we see that it's of God's will. It's of God's choosing. That he has brought us forth by the word of truth. Now, a couple verses prior, James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from above. 
comes from the Father of lights, in whom there's no variation, no shadow of, chur- of turning. That comes, of course, right after last week's teaching that says, don't ever say that God's the one that's tempting you to sin or causing you to sin, because God cannot tempt people, nor can he himself be tempted. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift is what comes from the Lord. And I'll tell you what, a person being born again is one of the best gifts that there is. I say one of the best gifts because Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, in the very last verse, he says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And so before we just hop into being moralistic people, or perhaps being just benevolent people who own orphanages or who go on missions trips or anything like that, There must be an inward heart change. There needs to be a birth. There needs to be a brought forth by God, by the Holy Spirit in your life. John tells us in chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus and says that, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's talking to one of the most religious people that the world has ever known. Nicodemus who's a Pharisee, whose whole job is try to just act good all the time, okay? This guy, Nicodemus, had the outward appearance of religion down. But Jesus gets to the heart of the issue and says, I'm telling you, assuredly, most assuredly, unless you've been born again, brought forth, regenerated, if you will, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. John chapter 1, verse 13 tells us, I wish I had 12 up there. Verse 12 says, as many of those who would receive Jesus to those, he gave the right to be called sons and daughters of God. And so it's in verse 12 that we see man's responsibility to those who would receive him. There's a responsibility from you today to receive the gift of God. And to those who do that, he gives the right to be called sons, daughters of God. But it wasn't you that originally said, you know what, today I'm just going to get saved. I just feel like a getting in a saved mood. I'm just going to really try hard and save myself. No, the very next verse of John tells us that we were born again, not by blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Guys, it starts with God. His own will is what saved us. It says that he brought us forth by the word of truth, by the word of God, by the gospel of truth. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.23 that we've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. Now listen to this. Through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. You have your Bible with you today? That leatherback book or whatever it might be? It's the word of God. It's his words, his revelation of himself breathed out to us. It is powerful. It discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is able to correct and convince us and rebuke us. It lives and it abides forever. The word of God saves us. So that we could be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So that we could be a foretaste of the kingdom of God. So that the whole world would crane its neck and look at us and say, Man, 
those people, those Christians, they're just the first of it. They're just the first of all that God is going to do through his power, through his glory, through his victory. In fact, Romans tells us that there's an earnest expectation of the creation that eagerly waits for the revelation of the sons of God. The literal translation is that all of creation is craning its neck looking for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. Come on, people, start living for Jesus because this place is corrupt and we need the kingdom of God to advance. We've been saved by the will of God so that we could be a foretaste or a first fruits of all that he's going to bring onto the scene. Ephesians tells us in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, you probably have it memorized. I'm going to read it so I don't mess up. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. I like it. It's the word poema. We are his poem, if you will. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God has saved us to be first fruits, to be living something out that is representative of the kingdom of God. He saved us by his grace through faith in him for good works. We balk at that. Don't balk at that. I'm not saying you're saved by good works. That'd be false preaching. I'm saying you've been saved by grace of God for good works. In Jesus, for good works that God had been preparing before the foundations of the world so that we would walk in them. Adam and Eve were supposed to be walking in that. And so he has chosen to give us birth. That shows God's initiative. It's through the word of truth. That shows the instrument that God has used so that we might be the first fruits. And that shows his intention of it all. What did God have planned when he sent his son to die for sinful man? He had a plan to redeem us to himself. A people, Titus is told, who are zealous for good works. Now it's imperative that we see that James describes in our original text, 26 and 27, the consequences of a changed life, the consequences of being born again, the evidence of family relationship. If you're here today and you confess to have a life in God, but you've remained unchanged, that is unthinkable, James tells us. We cannot reduce Christian living to simply charity and morality. We got to be aware of a danger of suggesting that James is providing a complete picture of, of acceptable religion or a total picture of acceptable religion. He can't be. Think what would be missing. There's no mention of a life that is zealous and, and hungry for the word of God or a life that is involved in the fellowship of God's people as the word of God tells us or a life that is regularly partaking of the sacraments. Or a regular, or excuse me, or, or a righteousness and salvation that's apart from the law, James would be missing out on so much. He'd be giving us more than, uh, or no more than what Micah gives us in Micah chapter 6 8. Imagine if I told you, hey, you want to be a really good religious person? Just do Micah 6 8. 
Because he has shown you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So close the Bible because that's the only verse that you'll ever need. Guys, there's a whole lot there. There's a whole lot else there. Now Micah 6, 8 and James 1, 26 and 27, those are good scriptures. And it's a good framework, but it's not the total picture. It's an illustrative picture. James is showing us what religion is, but not what all religion is. He's not showing us all that religion is. You may say, I have no interest in being part of a church, but I'm a very rational and religious person helping with orphans, donating to the Nepal trip, and that's all that matters. If someone says that to you, you'll feel hamstrung at first, won't you? Well, you seem like a pretty good person, and you haven't cussed at me yet today, and I mean, you're dressed really nice, so you must be a pretty religious person. I don't know what to say. Here's what you say. You say, ma'am, sir, friend, love you. But verses 18 through 25 come before verses 26 and 27. So let's read them together. In verse 18, you have a new birth that is necessary. In verses 19 through 25, you have a new life that comes from the new birth. And in verse 26 and 27, you have characteristics of that new life, but they're not all the characteristics of that new life. It's a comprehensive summary. Excuse me, it's not a comprehensive summary. It's not a complete summary. The verses 26 and 27 are a good test to see if we have real faith. If you have real faith, you need to have a controlled tongue. If you have real faith, there needs to be evidence of a compassionate heart. If you have real faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God dwells in you like you say he does, you need to have a clean life. And so let's look at verses 19 through 25 very quickly before we digest our text today. This is our text, but the main thrust gets us back to 26 and 27. 19 through 25, we have the life and the behavior of someone who's had this new birth. Verse 19 says, So then, my beloved brethren... Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. So then, guys, that's a connective statement. So then means there's something that happened before this that's leading us to the thought right now. What is that? It's found in verse 18. That we've been brought forth by the will of God, through the word of God, working in our life, so that we would be a first fruits to God. So then, because we've been born again, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Swift to hear. Does that describe you? That word hear can also be translated obey. Quick to obey the Lord. Swift to hear, slow to speak. It's been said that God created the human body with two ears and one mouth for a reason. It's like he was hinting something at us. Use these a little more, use this a little bit less. And that's what James is telling us. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath and anger and punishment against people. Verse 20 says, For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
The angry punishment of you against your fellow man does not equal the rightness of God. It's the Lord that says, hey, let me take vengeance on people, okay? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, because I'm going to do it right, and I'm going to do it in proportion to the offense. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Verse 21 says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Therefore is another connecting word. You don't just start out here. You go back to where it's chaining us to. And it's chaining us to verse 18. Because we've been born again by the will of God, we have the word of God working in us receiving the word of truth, the gospel of truth, because we've been made first fruits and a foretaste of the kingdom of God, we need to lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive the word of God. The moral impurity and the hateful feelings is a direct translation. Those things need to be set aside and put off like you're unzipping some kind of coveralls that are full of moral impurity and hateful feelings, and you just take them off and set them aside. And the response to that is receiving something else upon you, or rather in you. As it says, receive with meekness or a surrendered attitude the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The word of God, the Bible. My little girl, Lainey, five years old, is starting to realize that the Bible is the word of God. I'm trying to work, you know, and they're coming into my office, and she's got her little children's Bible with her, and she's like, hey, this is like God speaking to us. I'm like, yeah, I can't believe God speaks to us. And I go, yeah, that's why they call it the word of God. And then she just kind of goes into this, like, amazement type thing, you know. The word of God is able to save our souls but we need to receive it and allow it to be implanted in it in us. Paul says in that missionary chapter, the word of salvation has been sent. This established truth implanted into our heart. Notice it's not the spoken word or the heard word, but it's the implanted word that saves. New life occurs when we surrender to the intent that God's word has. And we would welcome its effect. Verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That word but is a connecting phrase. It says go back. Go back to what? We can go clear back to the whole thing. But look at how it says the implanted word received is able to save your souls. And then it says, but you got to be doers of the word. You can't be hearers only. That is lying to yourself. One of the great themes of the book of James is action. I kind of like there's an automotive shop right over here called Action Auto. I kind of like that. Action. Faith in action. Being doers. In today's church, there's so much good Bible teaching on the radio and on the internet, a lot of good preachers in this town, that we've raised up and bred a whole class of people that are professional connoisseurs of sermons. They're like wine tasters, you know, they swirl it around and they sniff it and they look at the legs going down the glass and they take a sermon and they 
push it around in their mouth, and then they spit it back into the glass because they're not going to receive it in their heart in the first place. That's what we've raised in our society and perhaps even in our church at times. It's not what the Lord has ever had intended. Going from church to church, sipping on a teaching, evaluating it, and never applying it. Guys, don't be like the overweight, uncoordinated sports writer who's never played a down of football in his, in his entire life. And he sits on the sideline and with his typewriter, uh, the, or the press box, criticizing the quarterback. James is afraid that this form of self-deception where you hear so many Bible studies, you start mistaking hearing for participating in it. And Jesus says in John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And we would say amen, right? But then he says, but these are the things that testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. You're deceiving yourself if you just flip the Bible, read the Bible, highlight the Bible, quote the Bible on Facebook, develop all sorts of Bible reading plans, but you're never going to come to Jesus who it's all about, and you're never going to obey Jesus who it's all about, because Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? So receive with meekness the implanted word that is able to save, but don't just be hearers of it, be doers of it. Verse 23, for, connecting word, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. What a great picture for us to understand, right? We've all been there, waking up early, going to the bathroom, you see in some blemishes, a pimple here, a whisker out of place, some strange thing that looks like a liver spot, you're not sure where that came from, and it's time to powder and to pluck and to shave. But then your kids call on you, or you, for, you know, I gotta go do this or that, and you walk away from the mirror and you forget to take care of business, Okay? There's a problem there. Seriously, there's a message here. No, I'm joking. That's not for anybody here. We come to the word of God and look into its beautiful shininess. And the Lord speaks to our heart way down deep. Even today, we know what the Lord's message is for us. We've heard his spirit calling us to something, to repent of something, to obey in something, to go somewhere, to give something, to speak to someone, to share. It's time to obey. It's time to obey, lest you be like that one who forgets what kind of man he was in the mirror. Verse 25, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in all that he does. The perfect law is like a crystal clear mirror. But the law of liberty, law of liberty, law of freedom, seems like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? Law and freedom. The law of bondage was the Mosaic law. It provided a whole bunch of rules without the power to obey those rules. But the new covenant is a perfect law of freedom. It not only provides for us wisdom to live, but the power 
to live. You guys have heard the veterans and the, the Band of Brothers Club around here and all of them say, freedom isn't free. Has anybody ever heard that? Freedom isn't free. Our freedom has cost. It's cost many men their lives in sacrificing. We have incredible freedoms in this country. We're not in chains or under oppression because many brave men and women stood up to tyranny, sacrificed their own comfort and family time and even their own lives in brutally violent deaths so that others could continue to have freedom. Now, knowing that causes a whole other group of people to want to serve their country in various ways and even lay down their lives and sacrifice their comfortable life for others and in honor of the ones who've gone before us. That type of commitment is not slavery. It's not entrapment or oppression. It's not something they have to do, but it's something that they get to do out of gratitude, love for country, family, and fellow citizens. We have a man from our church right now who's in Afghanistan, and he's going to be there for nearly a year. His son's going on the Nepal trip. We'll just be a couple countries away. And he has laid down time with his family, time with his friends, times in comfort to be in Afghanistan. And I, in between services last Sunday, I got to Skype him here at the church in the kitchen and talk with him. He looks like a different man. He's seen things. He's sacrificed things. His wife, Tanya, was here in the first service. And she's a gal who's been placed over the uh, National Guard section here for Central Oregonian, who's over the wives and to help love, on, help love on the wives. She willingly has volunteered to minister to the wives, make sure they've got everything they need, make sure they've got questions answered, make sure that they're comforted. And she's, you know, she's been gone a lot, pouring herself out for the wives of our soldiers. But she'd be the first one to tell you that she didn't have to do that. She got to do it in love of her husband and supporting him, in love of her country, in love of her community. It's people like that are, that are protecting us, not because they have to, but because they get to. Now, we too have been given freedom. Freedom in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2.16 says, We're free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. We recently looked at Deuteronomy chapter 6, where in the law it says that if there is a slave who his year for freedom has come, but he loves his master so much that he wants to just stay at the property and just keep working and keep serving his master for the rest of his life, he can become what's called a doulos or a bondservant. And he would come and he would express his commitment to his master and his master would take him to the doorpost of the house and would thrust his ear through with a wooden awl as a symbol or a signet of this commitment. He's called a bondservant. And so Peter tells us that we are uh, we're no longer slaves, we're free. But we use that freedom to serve the Lord as a willing bondservant. Romans tells us in chapter 6, verse 14, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. And we all shout, Woohoo! Freedom! Yes, and it's true. It goes on to say, though, Romans 6, 18, Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because 
the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members or your body parts as slaves to uncleanness and of lawless, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. That means when you were a slave of sin, when you were outside of Christ, you didn't have to do good things. All right? You didn't have to do that. You were free. But it says, it goes on. What verse were we in? Sorry, I lost my spot. 2468. Okay. You were free in regard to righteousness. The end of verse 20. What fruit did you have then in the things which you were ashamed? For the end of those things are death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and in the end, everlasting life. When we forsake the slavery and are, are freed off the slavery of sin, we go into a whole nother type of slavery. But Jesus says, come to all of me. Come to me, all of you who are slaves over here, who are weary and heavy laden. Come over to me and I will give you rest. Learn from me. You'll find that I'm gentle. Take my yoke upon you. Just as an ox would wear a yoke. Take my yoke upon you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Slaves of God have fruit to holiness. And in the end, everlasting life. 1 Corinthians 7.22 says, He who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, who is called while free is Christ's slave. Galatians 5.13, You brethren have been called to freedom, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We have the test of true faith. In our scripture today, verses 26 through 27. If you want to see what faith looks like, here's how it shows up. Self-control of the tongue, a compassion for the weak, and a desire for purity and holiness. We have been born, we've been given life, and now we have new behavior. It's not a comprehensive, complete, or total summary, but it's a good test to see if we have real faith. Controlled tongue, compassionate heart, clean life. Verse 26, if anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religious religion is useless. We're going to see more about having a controlled tongue in chapter 3, where we see how powerful this little muscle in our mouth is and how much trouble it can get us into and how much it can hurt people. So we're going to study that a whole nother time. But the main aim right here is to just say, if you do not exercise self-control over the words that you speak in the way that you encourage people, in the way that you discourage people, in the way that you gossip or slander about people, in the way that you speak forth that because it's true, I'm going to say it anyways, which is no real excuse to be a gossip or a slanderer, we need to bridle our tongues. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit called self-control. But we will get into that another time. We're going to look at verse 27, the remainder of our service, where it says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and the widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. James is working the principle out that if we are going to bear the family name of Christian, 
We're going to have the family likeness. We're going to be marked with a genuine concern for those in society that are helpless. Genuine worship, genuine religion is selecting carefully and taking care of the widows and the orphans. This is a challenge that's going to reoccur in chapter 2. It's already happened in chapter 1. The way we treat the poor people, the way we treat the people that have nothing, the way we treat people that are down and out. And the reason that I liken this, widows and orphans, to poor people as well, is because the fruit of our faith will reach out to those people that could never give us anything in return, the widows and the orphans. Jesus says, don't invite, to the people, invite the people into your home that are wealthy and have all the gold and the necklaces and can obviously pay you back for your hospitality. They're going to invite you over and, and be hospitable to you. No, you bring people into your home that could never get to have such a meal, that could never get to have such a time of friendship, that could never get to have such a time of comfort. And you pour out to them and you bless them and you love on them. That's what the fruit of faith does. The Pharisees... We're so religious and so polished on the outside, but the inside was like a tomb full of rotting dead men's bones. And Jesus says, you hypocrites, you got to clean the inside of the cup just as much as you clean the outside of the cup. You hypocrites, woe to you, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Devouring widow houses, not little houses, just widow houses, no, widows' houses. The high school kids used to love that joke. And for a pretense, for a little money, for a little clap and pat on the back, you'll make a good, long religious prayer. Woe to you, you religious hypocrite. You don't care about the widow. You don't care about the orphan. You don't care about the poor. James is not limiting the need to widows and orphans. He's identifying the epitome of human need. Single moms, quadriplegics, paralyzed people, People who are going through bankruptcy, people who've just lost somebody, they're in need of pure and undefiled religion as well. A heart that is controlled by the Spirit of God will be marked by compassion. We see this all throughout the scripture. I want to wrap it up by sharing with you God and his providence and how in the 1800s he brought two men that were born at nearly the same time into England the two men's names were William Wilberforce and John Newton. William Wilberforce was converted in his mid-20s while he was going to college at Cambridge. And he wrote in his personal journal, God Almighty has set before me two great objects. The suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. People got to know to keep their left hand in their lap and which salad fork to use. Am I right? No, that's not what he was talking about. He's talking about the transformation, transformative power that the gospel makes in a community and in someone's life. Those were his aim. Get rid of the slave trade and show people the transformative power of the gospel. In March 27, 1807, William Wilberforce was incredibly influential as the historical parliamentary voted and banned the transportation of slaves by British subjects. These two men, John Newton and William Wilberforce, have in their stories how a picture of how good news always accompanies good deeds. And good deeds always accompanies good news. John Newton 
is a man that was taken from being a slave trader, converted by God, and given the ability to write songs. Amazing Grace is one of them. And we sang a chorus from Amazing Grace today together. He became a preacher, a proponent of gospel proclamation, and one of the key influences in the life of William Wilberforce. These men were epitomized by good deeds. When William Wilberforce was buried in Westminster Abbey, that's a tongue twister I want you guys to work on this week. William Wilberforce buried in Westminster Abbey, okay? Um, When he was buried in 1833, seven years later, they put a plaque up under a statue of him. And here's what the plaque said. To the memory of William Wilberforce, born in Hull, August 24th, 1759, died in London, July 29th, 1833. For nearly half a century, a member of the House of Commons, and for six parliaments during that period, one of the two representatives for Yorkshire. In an age and country fertile in great and good men, he was among the foremost of those who fixed the character of their times. Because to high and various talents, to warm benevolence, and to universal candor, he added the abiding eloquence of a Christian life. Eminent as he was in every department of public labor and a leader in every work of charity, whether to relieve the temporal or the spiritual wants of his fellow men, His name will ever be specially identified with those exertions which by the blessing of God removed from England the guilt of the African slave trade and prepared the way for the abolition of slavery in every colony of the empire. In the prosecution of these objects, he relied not in vain on God, but in the progress he was called to endure great obloquy. Obloquy? Nope. Nobody here? Nope. We don't use that one. Nope. There's a reason. Should have just skipped it. Should have learned from the first service. Okay. Uh, He was called to endure great opposition. He outlived, however, all of the enmity. And in the evening of his days, withdrew from public life and public observation to the bosom of his family. Yet he died not unnoticed or forgotten by his country. The peers and commons of England, with the Lord Chancellor and the Speaker at their head, in solemn procession from their respective houses, carried him to his fitting place among the mighty dead around, here to repose, till through the merits of Jesus Christ, his only Redeemer and Savior, whom in his life and in his writings he had desired to glorify, he shall rise in the resurrection of the just. What a memory! What a memory of a man whose good news was accompanied with great living and good deeds. And 200 years later, we're the beneficiaries of his commitment to combine that good news with the good deeds. Stories told of Charles Spurgeon, who at an evening prayer meeting busted it and said, Hey, we're a large church. We should be doing more for the Lord in the great city. I want us right now to pray and ask God to send us some new work. So the people in the remainder of the prayer time prayed, Oh God, please send us some new work. And the work God sent them ended up being the Stockwell Orphanage, which has had a great impact on the children of London ever since. Eusebius in AD 250, a Roman historian, wrote that the church in Rome was reportedly supporting 1,500 destitute men, women, and children on a daily basis. 
How exciting to be in this text today, the day that we send out 20 people to go to Nepal to love on these mountain children. It is a test of what pure and undefiled religion is. And as these 20 are sent out, it reflects the heart of the majority of the people that call this church home. Every year in Nepal, the statistic was that 16,000 boys and girls are taken, are taken and stolen into the sex trafficking industry. But when Jack was here in November, he shared that that number has gone up 150% to 40,000 boys and girls kidnapped for the sex slavery every year. As I was studying yesterday, I read an article about the corruption that is in the orphanages right now, where now orphanages are stealing children so that they can have more numbers and get more donations and make themselves rich. We hope to go and to stand up as advocates for the Lord, for these children. The Lord says in Isaiah 117 that we need to learn to do good and seek justice and rebuke the oppressor to defend the fatherless and to plead for the widow. When the second set of tablets made their way down with Moses for the Ten Commandments, it says that the Lord administers justice to the father and the widow. He loves the stranger. He gives him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. Another word for orphan can be one with no friends. Take care of the stranger. Take care of the ones in this church that appear to have no friends. Invite them over for lunch. Go sit by them. Go reach out to them. If you're doing the Eat This Book Bible reading plan that we're doing right now, guess where we're at? Exodus 22. I read it this morning and I rejoiced because it says where we're at as a church reading through the Bible, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child if you afflict them in any way and they cry out at all to me I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows and your children fatherless the Holy Spirit is moving this body deeper and deeper into his grace pouring himself out upon us giving us vision so that we get to be part of what James calls a wonderful test for pure and undefiled religion. If the worship team would come up, let's stand together. And I want to read Ephesians, a little section out of Ephesians 2. In verse 3, it says that we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Children of wrath. Have you ever met one of those little kids? They're like the lost boys from Peter Pan. Rufio, Rufio. Okay. Verse 12 says, And at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Jesus Christ, you who were once afar off, orphans, strangers, aliens, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 17 says, And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off, And to those who were near, for through him we both have access by spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are no longer orphans. You are no longer friendless and fatherless, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Who's our example? 
of pure and undefiled religion, Jesus. We were aliens, strangers, foreigners, orphans, without friends, on the outside, but Jesus. We just follow his example. We are motivated by what he has done. Because of him, we've received a new spirit, not in bondage again to fear, but a spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We're going to sing for the spirit of God to come upon us as a church for this task that he's sending us towards the next three weeks. We believe it'll be longer than that and farther than that and deeper than that. But it's not just the feet that are going out that need more of the Holy Spirit's power. God's calling this church to fast during that week. God's calling this church to get together three times a day and labor in prayer for the orphans, for the fatherless, for the widow. You get to be a part of that. Will you be a part of that with us? Cry out with us today for the Holy Spirit to anoint you and burn like a fire, a powerful furnace in you so that the world and every eye would see Jesus, our hero, our champion. He's rescued us and he wants to rescue them. Let's cry out. Let's sing out together for more of him, for more of this task of pure and undefiled religion. Let's sing it together.